Welcome to Geographical Thinking, a podcast full of ideas, stories, and conversations through the lens of geography. I'm your host, Guan Yu. In July and August, we're bringing you three episodes on the topic of climate change. Each episode takes on a different angle in discussing the impact of the biggest crisis of our era and how location technology is used to solve issues affecting society, business, and environment. These episodes are first shared on Esri's Science of Wear podcast. In today's episode, we're introducing you to Marta Segura, the first chief heat officer in Los Angeles. She speaks with Esri's John Lennon about how civic leaders are using maps and location technology to bring relief to LA communities. Hi, Marta. Thank you for having me. So heat and extreme heat events. What don't people understand about this issue? What are some of the common misconceptions you come across? Well, in Los Angeles and California, and I think in many other areas who have traditionally had hot summers, I don't think people understand that the the summer lasts longer now. It's a heat season, and ours comes from June to, to mid-November also. Heat waves are no longer one or two days. They're more like three or four days. And our last one was more like two weeks. So what what that means is that your bodies don't have time to recover or our bodies don't have time to recover the way they once did when the heat waves were short and the season was only limited to the summertime. Um, And that means more heat exposure, more heat injury, more premature deaths, more hospitalizations. And in Los Angeles, because of our density and because of the excessive air pollution, particularly in what we call frontline communities, we have the vast majority of those deaths and hospitalizations in areas with higher pollution burden. People still don't get that when they go out into the hot sun, they're not going to easily recover unless they intentionally design their day around getting water and cooling and being thermally comfortable. I, br- I introduced this topic as extreme heat events, but what I'm hearing you say is it's actually heat season now. It's not necessarily an event, so to speak. It's just something that the city actually needs to plan for for a prolonged period of time. Can you expand on that? Yeah. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. The There's a longer period of time, longer duration, longer frequency of these heat waves. So the city could bring in um, more amenities and more infrastructure to create a climate and heat adapted city. And what I mean by that is more shade structure, more trees, more hydration stations to make the comfort of the pedestrians and those that use public transportation much more tenable. And so that we don't reduce our public transportation ridership and we still have busy streets where people are out there and shopping or doing their their daily cafe visits or going to school. So we need to create a more climate adapted city for our pedestrians. You're the city's special heat officer for Los Angeles, and there's only a few cities uh, globally with this position, six if I'm not mistaken. Can you tell me about the responsibilities of a, of a heat officer in, in your case? I think all of us but particularly, of course, through my experience, are trying to unsilo a lot of departments that are working on climate issues and are working on climate adaptation that 
specifically addresses extreme heat. But now we have to really design a city um, that works together and that responds together to to the extreme heat season. So it's not just short-term and long-term climate adaptation. It's Mm -hmm. also how we co-design and redesign our emergency response. Do you see part of your role maybe demystifying climate change and really tying climate change to the the impact of heat on on the population? Yeah, from day one, we we realized that we had to convey and communicate the relevance of climate and the relevance of extreme heat to everyday people, to businesses, to churches, to nonprofit organizations. Um, and we need to do a much better job in conveying its its significance and impact on everyday people. Um, So, for example, you know, the emergency response, we would have less deaths and hospitalizations if people were aware of the frequency duration of the heat season so that they would prepare every day as if it was going to be an extreme heat day during the summer so that they don't get um, hospitalized or don't get put themselves at risk or their family members. Yeah, so, so taking heat out of the pigeonhole of climate, so to speak, you put it in the realm of public safety, public health. How are you quantifying or understanding the effect of heat on the public health uh, of LA, on the infrastructure, on the safety of your citizens? Well, we're fortunate in LA to have a few different data sets. One is the UCLA heat risk map that looked at hospitalizations in the last 10 years and also deaths. They found that in most of these areas, uh, deaths and hospitalizations went up by 15%. So it's an established public health method to use the excess rate of deaths and hospitalizations to indicate uh, the impact of a heat wave because those measurements were, were made only during heat waves and then compared to non-heat wave days. Okay. Right? And and you and that's a risk map. So it's an actual map showing the impact in certain geographies, whether it's a, a neighborhood, a, a community, a zip code. That's right. And then the other thing that was obviously discovered is that the vast majority of these deaths and hospitalizations happened where you would expect, where um, communities have been historically redlined or historically disinvested, and uh, where the air pollution is significantly higher. And so that you have more health disparities as a result. I want to talk, Marta, a little bit about the Justice 40 initiative. Just to remind our, our listeners, within days of taking office, uh, President Biden brought in Justice 40, which recognizes that some communities are underserved and overburdened by pollution and other environmental factors. As a result, President Biden specified that 40% of federal investments should go to those populations. How does your work fit into that? And can you talk a little bit about any place-based equity maps your team uses? Sure. Um, Yeah, I think it fits beautifully into what our office is charged to do, which is to provide an equity focus to our climate policies. So in, in other words, not just create climate policies, but create equitable climate policies. So these maps that we have, we can use them as a strategic tool for our departments to use to invest their resources. For example, I was just asked by city council in committee to advise the Bureau of Engineers that's going to be investing $30 million to decarbonize city buildings. 
so that we can create an overarching strategy to invest the majority of our future resources in um, these disinvested areas. And it's not just for the sake of investing in disinvested areas. We believe that we'll accelerate climate solutions, which will benefit everyone if we can take care of the areas that are contributing the vast majority of these emissions, but are also hurting the people that live there the most. Yeah. Can you expand on that? Why, why do you believe that's the case? And, and what I mean, what does the research say about investing in, in those populations that need it the most? Well, I mean, if you visualize, we put our investments everywhere without a strategy or prioritizing um, uh, certain specific areas, you're not going to get great numbers, right? You're not going to get great outcomes. But if you prioritize an area that has excessive pollution and you reduce their emissions um, mm -hmm. and you, you measure the emissions reductions, then you can also look at this UCLA heat risk map and not just measure the reductions in emissions, but measure the impact on public health. Um, so we, we have baseline numbers for these communities that we're going to be using that can help us demonstrate the outcome. Whereas if you just have a very broad strategy, um, it's, it's much more difficult to um, demonstrate. The other, the other part of that answer is when you reduce the emissions from these highly polluted areas, you're reducing emissions for the entire region, which really helps the city then uh, get more effective on how we are measuring our reductions. And, and otherwise, when we've used very market-driven approaches where everybody can buy their own solar panels and uh, people can just buy their own electric vehicles and and we're just hoping and praying that that's going to reduce our overall greenhouse gas emissions. Well, it doesn't really work that way now that we know that 40% or more come from buildings and 40% or more of those greenhouse gas emissions come from big transportation. That's where the city needs to step in, provide funding, provide that push to, to help the community. That's right. Marta, I live in Buffalo. So if it's hot here, we stay inside for a couple of days. But one of your goals in the city is improving heat resilience to keep people moving. That seems counterintuitive to me, but can you elaborate on, on why this is, is so important? Yeah, this is really important because heat illness, heat exhaustion, uh, which we also call heat injury, uh, disproportionately affects you know the, the, the working class and the working poor who have to take public transportation to work or to school. And those of us who are middle class and high, we, we have, we're remote workers, we have nice air-conditioned offices, but we can't expect to keep workers home. They have, there is, there, we know they're the essential workers since the pandemic. So the city has an obligation to make the city work for everybody. What does that mean? That means we need climate adaptive tools for the city to keep people moving, but we need more shade structures, we need more trees, we need more hydration stations, and we could have public-private partnerships that also increase the amount of cooling facilities, which we call cooling centers as well. So let's say you're walking by a McDonald's, say they're already part of our voluntary program of businesses that offers refuge uh, so people's bodies can recover from extreme heat and get some water at the same time. Um, we want to make sure that everybody has access to 
a center or a cooling facility. And that's how business can get involved. I mean, if people are home, they're not buying coffees, they're not shopping. So that's part of being a vibrant community is both the, the public sector, but also the private sector and having a vibrant you know, economy. Agreed. You know, and, and if you walk into those places now, I, I, ha- I have Jack in the Box and they're basically empty because since the pandemic, people have been driving through everything. So I would imagine that these businesses would welcome more visitors they may just come in for water and refuge, but then they'll realize that they want to buy a meal. So it's it's a definitely a win-win situation to keep the community vibrant, thriving, and give people um, also the sense of, of community where McDonald's and Jack in the Box and libraries and other city facilities are all intentionally conveying and communicating that we are here for you. We are here to keep you safe and consider us part of your circle of, of friends to keep you healthy all day long. Marta, you, you've developed in the city what you call augmented cooling centers. That's really an example of how you are looking at this heat problem with public health in mind. So the, the greatest number of hospitalizations, you're making infrastructure decisions based on where and how to place these uh, augmented cooling centers. And ultimately it is about safety. Right, you're not getting calls uh, to 911 for for um, injuries or collapse people collapsing. It, it's it's really the the three topics kind of merging. It's absolutely true. It's it's a multifaceted issue. You have people who have health disparities living in pollution burdened areas where there is extreme heat, and extreme heat stagnates the air pollution, increasing the exposures to those people with 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 heart disease, kidney disease, asthma, COPD. And it's it's no uh, surprise that those are the people that are ending up in the hospital. So we need to deploy more resources there. We need to have more resources there to make sure that those incidents don't happen. And we also need a long-term strategy to reduce their pollution, to reduce their burden, to reduce their health disparities and connect it back to housing and education and employment and um, workforce development so that this dream of healthy, thriving communities is real for everyone. One of the things that really got me interested in your your story, Marta, was an app called Cool Spots LA. Can you describe what that app is and what it does and how people are using it and the public health results you're seeing from, from its use? Sure. So it was an effort to bring together all of the different city amenities and investments to cool our neighborhoods and and our public transportation. So I I realized that these different departments had been really investing in in our communities, but nobody was conveying it in one singular app. And therefore, it wasn't really getting out there. And people didn't know the, the magnitude of resources that were there for them. So we worked with the different departments. They gladly gave us their data. Then we worked with the chief heat off, uh, chief sorry data officer, and she put it into an app. And then we just promoted it during heat season to our three one one callers, our nine one one offices, and the media. And I think that that's why our attendance was much higher this time than in previous years. Um, so it makes it easy for people to access hydration stations and cooling centers and libraries so that they can go cool off. 
One of the stories you told me about earlier, Marta, that I wanted to share with with the audience is the work you're you're doing to influence schools um, with the the uh, planting of trees and mm-hmm. and can can you expand on that and share that story? Sure. Um, so basically, it we've we've realized um, also through mapping that schools have very little shade and and very little um, green space. Uh, but I think that the policies at the city of LA to, to you know, double and triple its green space, make sure we have an equity focus on open space and trees um, to create more shade out there has influenced other jurisdictions. And LAUSD is a separate jurisdiction. They're not under the mayor as they might be in New York and other cities. But because we have the city creating these fundamental steps and setting the example in the model. Um, I think that other jurisdictions are following through and there is nothing more important than our kids having shade and open space during recess so that they can also continue to thrive. And are those shade trees, palm trees? I mean, you drive around LA and, and you certainly see oh, a lot of palm trees. Yeah, we, we definitely are creating guidelines, have created guidelines now to plant quality shade trees and not only plant quality shade trees, but prioritize planting them in areas where they don't exist. In the Mm -hmm. past, for example, the planning department would allow you to plant whatever kind of tree you wanted to plant. They'd have a tree requirement and an open space requirement, but they wouldn't dictate in the past what kind of tree. Now they're there's definitely guidelines for and rules for what kinds of trees. And Metro recently also changed its policies. It was planting palm trees everywhere, but we collaborated. We told them what our guidelines were, and now they've made a, an executive decision at the board not to plant any more palm trees because, as you know, palm trees don't provide shade. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's great. So 10, 15 years, we should have a different treescape across the city. That, that's amazing. Amazing work. It's an amazing story. I love the vision you have and I love the vision you've shared. Um, is there anything else you want to leave our listeners with on this topic, on the topic of heat or the work you're doing with the city? Yeah. I mean, even if your city doesn't have a chief heat officer, um, these are solutions that any city can implement with the will and the the shared desire and the shared goal to protect public health and to protect public health equally. And I'm here as a resource. I think all of the chief heat officers are a valuable resource and we wanna make sure to to spread this throughout the nation and really throughout the world because the entire world is uh, suffering from drought and, and climate change and heat exposure. And in fact, we're anticipating more millions of, of migrants as a result throughout the world because of these um, disasters that are happening. So we want to prevent that from happening as much as possible. And we want to be a resource to them. Marta, thanks so much. Thanks for joining. And uh, it was really great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Thank you, John. Marta is the Chief Heat Officer and Climate Emergency Mobilization Director for Los Angeles. This podcast is brought to you by Esri Canada, a technology company that empowers people and organizations by the science of where. Bye for now.